Well, Paul, and I say this quite often, and I, I don't think you doubt this. I just want to make sure we understand. Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, wrote 1 Timothy for the purpose of laying out the priorities for a healthy church. In chapter 3, verse 14 and verse 15, Paul gives us the theme. We've talked about this theme several times, but just to keep it in our minds. The reason for 1 Timothy, chapter 3, verse 14, I'm writing these things to you so that, verse 15, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. This is critically important here, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Paul is not telling us how the church at Ephesus ought to be. He's telling us how church life ought to be everywhere. As I said last week, beginning in chapter 5, when we started chapter 5, and it runs down through chapter 6, verse 2, Paul addresses the, the proper treatment of various groups of people within the church. Last week we saw that he was talked about how to respond to older men, older women, younger men, younger women. And then he followed that up with a rather long section on the Christian's duty to honor godly widows. Paul now deals with the need to honor church elders, overseers, or pastors. Remember, I think I told you this, when you see the word elder, you say what? Pastor, that's what he's talking about. Overseer, elder, pastor. Paul's instructions are yet another aspect of his reason for writing 1 Timothy so that we would know how to conduct ourselves in the household of God, the church of the living God. In our passage today, Paul gives instructions about, again, elders, pastors. In particular, he gives instructions for how the church is to honor their elders, what the church is to do when the need for... There's the need for discipline of elders. How the church should be careful when selecting its elders. The church is not to ordain, uh, excuse me, is not to ordain men who are not spiritually mature. He'll talk about that toward the end. And he talks about the call here to a, a personal holiness for elders, pastors, overseers. Here's what I want to say: all that Paul speaks here pertains to the order and management that God has established for the local church. And yet, in these directions to Timothy about how elders are to live and minister, there are messages for every single one of us. It's not just, oh, he's talking to pastors, I can kick it in gear, and when we sing the family of God, I can go home and eat lunch, and my day is pretty much done. No, there are principles that apply to every single life here today. So if you look at your handout, here's the main idea. How the church treats and responds to those, God calls to the role of leadership. And by leadership we're talking about uh, what the passage here says, elders, pastors, overseers. How you're to treat and respond to those God calls to the role of leadership. So, verses 17 18. Quite simple. He's talking about honoring church leaders. Verse 17, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. You notice the word elders there? 
That word can cause some confusion when we associate it with leadership in the church. Most of the time when I say the word elder, what comes to mind? Go ahead and say it. Old. We think, hey, you're talking about somebody old. When we hear that word, we think old. Well, um, that's not what's going on here. I'm going to try to explain this once again. The term elder or overseer or pastor that we see throughout this text of Scripture, are, they're used interchangeably in the New Testament to refer to the same office of leadership in the church. Elder, overseer, equals pastor. They're one in the same. Now, that word elder doesn't always in the Bible, and in particular in the New Testament, in particular in 1 Timothy, is not referring to someone who is old. The word elder can be used, as it's used here, to refer to someone who is spiritually mature. So you think old, which means they should be mature. You translate that over to leadership in the church, someone who's a pastor, an overseer, elder, he should be spiritually mature. That's what that word's talking about. The word overseer looks at the work that's to be done. So you have a spiritually mature person who oversees, who manages or watches over the church. And then that word pastor, which is the word that we use most commonly, and I'm okay with that. But I find it interesting that the word pastor shows up one time in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. The rest of the time the word elders or overseer is used. And occasionally you see the word bishop. Pastor means to shepherd, and it looks at the work of an elder from the common picture of the church being God's flock of sheep. That's why we use the word pastor. It's shepherding. He's watching over God's flock. So the elder is, is the office. It's uh, a spiritually mature person. He's overseeing the work that's to be done in the church, and the pastor or shepherd is the manner in which he does the work. He oversees the church, but he does it as a shepherd. He's managing, he's leading people, and he's being loving and kind and courage and, and conviction. That's the way he's leading. So elders are men, again, who are spiritually mature. Their God-given role is to manage the spiritual and ministerial affairs of the church, and they do so in the manner of a shepherd. Now notice something else here. The word elders is in the plural. Not singular. The term is always used in the plural when we see the word church show up in the New Testament. Always in the plural. In other words, there is never to be a one-man overseer of a church or a single man doing the work of shepherding unless that flock is very small. The biblical task of an elder is simply too much for one person even if he works at it full time. Uh, now, I will acknowledge that the early church met in homes. You've heard this. The early church, they met in homes. They were in house churches, which were scattered all around the city. And it may be that a single elder was over each house church, but when the church in a particular city is referred to in the New Testament, example, the church at Ephesus and the church at Philippi, it always refers to the elders plural and the church singular. So he's talking to a collective group of men here leading, overseeing a church. And that was always the case in the New Testament. So look at verse 17 again. Notice the elders are to be considered worthy of double honor. Uh, the phrase double honor means on the one hand that uh, the compensation... And when we hear compensation, we think what? Finances. 
It, it talks about the compensation on one hand. On the other hand, it means respect or, and I know you don't like this word, submission. That's what he's talking about, honoring. The church honors, it double honors. That's what he's talking about. He doesn't mean to pay them double money. He's mean double honoring them. Taking care of them and following them. That's double honor. That's what he's talking about here. Be, they should be considered worthy of double honor. As it relates to taking care of a, a, an elder or a pastor, an overseer financially, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 14. And I, and I read this verse because I will acknowledge in ministry, pastoral ministry, there are some hucksters out there, okay? Yes. They are some people who take advantage of being ordained as a minister from a financial standpoint. They, they manipulate their taxes. They may preach three or four times a year and not pastor a church, but they're ordained and they get a tax break, which I think is, well, come see me. I'll tell you later what I think of that. I read this verse to you because this is what the Bible says. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 14 says, In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So those who give their lives to vocational, full-time ministry preaching of the gospel, God says that they should earn their living from that. And let me say this. You don't pay me to preach. And you're like, that's a good thing. You allow me to live so I can study and come on Sundays and preach to you and so I can minister to you and shepherd to you. You, you pay me. You, you help me financially to live and take care of my family. No one should ever say they preach to make money. They shepherd. They lead God's church and the church helps them. They honor them by helping them live so they can do that. As it relates to following... Here's what the Bible says. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And I know there's words that show up there that we don't like, obey and submit, but they're not words that we... Uh, we, we take those words from a negative standpoint. The point of that passage is, follow the leadership of your pastors and your elders because why they're keeping watch over your souls. Notice in verse 17 that, that there are qualifiers for double honoring, helping the pastor to live, and following his leadership. There are qualifiers for that. We just don't do that haphazardly. The Bible gives us some qualifiers for double honor. It says they must rule well and they must labor. That word rule means to manage. And again, that word rule, we, we don't like it, but it means to manage. Elders, pastors are to manage, lead, oversee the church, and they're to do it how? Well. Which kind of goes back to these people who want to preach three or four times a year and claim an ordination to get a tax break. That's not well. Look back at 1 Timothy chapter 3. Verses 4 and 5. <clears throat> there we see in relation to the, the elders, the overseers, the word manage. Manage is the same word as rule here in verse 17. In the Greek, it's the same word. In one place it's manage, in one place it's rule, so it means to manage. In verse 4, it refers to the elder who, do, who does what? Manages his own household. How? Well, there's that word well again. And then verse 5, management is compared to what? Taking care of what? 
the church of God. Note that this is a skill that a man can grow into. He can rule, but he needs to rule well, which means it takes some time. Some elders rule well. It's not an easy task, so a man needs time to work at it. Which, by the way, that means you can pray for your pastor to to do this well. He's He's to do that. He's to manage well. That's a qualifier for him receiving double honor. But notice, labor in preaching and teaching. That's the second qualifier for double honor. I don't see a major distinction between preaching and teaching. The New Testament, they're they're one and the same. There's not a major distinction between preaching and teaching. In the Bible, they're both, when you see them together, they're together. And they're referring to the same thing. I've been told by some that I'm not a preacher, I'm a teacher. Well, when I read the New Testament, Jesus, when you read about Jesus, it says Jesus what? He taught. He proclaimed. The Greek word for preach means to proclaim as a herald, one who announces the message of the king. In that sense, preaching means to set forth the authority of God's word, the king. Labor means to work hard at doing that. That's a qualifier, church. A pastor and elder must work hard at studying in order to proclaim the message of the king. See, it's not just any message that we proclaim. It's the message of who? The king of glory. We're proclaiming his message. And we have to work hard at that, right? And we must labor at that. It's not just something we can sit down and read a five or ten minute devotional and, or do a Saturday night special. We show up on Sunday morning and we shoot from the hill. That's not what a shepherd does. He, he labors in preaching and teaching. A pastor and elder must work hard at studying to proclaim that message. Paul says that elders who manage well and work hard at preaching and teaching should be respected and followed and they should be taken care of. Now let me say this as your pastor. Thank you for how you take care of me. Thank you for how you take care of me. And I've told you this before. I sit with a lot of preachers and I'm not going to call anybody by name. I sit with a lot of preachers and there's a lot of conversations that go on about not being taken care of. I don't get to participate in the moaning and groaning. And they look at me and say, what's up with you? I said, I'm taking pretty good care of. And thank you for that. Gary didn't wake up this week and go, I'm not getting enough money, so I'm going to preach in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. <laughs> right? You know why we're here, right? It come up on the schedule. That's the, the verses that come. So, an overseer, an elder, a pastor is to be double honored. He's to be taken care of. He's to be supported. And he's to be respected and followed. Verse 18. This is how Paul defends uh, or how he supports this verse 17. He's going to give an illustration. He's going to use the Bible to do it. Here's how he defends support by the church for its elders. For or because the Scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox... And Paul's not doing this to refer to a pastor as an ox. It's an, it's an illustration here. And he's using Scripture. For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Paul is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. And he's referring here to an ox being used to go across a threshing floor to crush the grain. You get the picture? They would walk across that floor and they would crush the grain. And what was the purpose? To separate the grain from the the chaff. And as he was doing that work, 
He was allowed to do what? Yeah, eat a little along the way. Now, if God is so concerned to allow an ox to be treated fairly, Paul is saying, how much more ought we to fairly treat those who live and minister in the church? Take care of them. God says they take care of an ox when he's working and laboring. Notice at the end of verse 18. And the laborer deserves his wages. This is a quote from Jesus in Luke chapter 10, verse 17. So here in one verse, Paul is saying, Scripture says... You notice what's going on here? Paul says what Scripture says, and he quotes from what? The Old Testament and the what? New Testament. So that means what? They're one and the same. They're both Scripture. Paul is saying Scripture says, and he quotes from the Old Testament, then the New Testament, and he treats both of these statements as settling the matter. God says here's how it should... Someone should be treated fairly, and Jesus says it Himself, and a laborer deserves His wages. So clearly the church is to love their elders, they're to honor them, they're to give them respect and follow their example, to follow the leadership, and the church is to provide for them financially to take care of them. Again, this passage comes up on the schedule. There was not a need for me to preach today that you need to give the preacher more money. Again, I am grateful to the Lord for how you take care of me. And I actually get to brag about that to other pastors and pray for them at the same time. Their people will do the same for them. Alright. Verses 19-21. Disciplining church leaders. Because some elders or pastors in the, in the church at Ephesus had fallen. Remember? Remember? Hymenaeus and Alexander, false teachers. Some of those leaders, some of those pastors had fallen. And because of that, Paul deals with the process of correcting that. The verse tells us three aspects of the proper discipline for church leaders. Notice first in verse 19, there's a need for accurate evidence. Let me stop right here. Do you realize that the Word of God is commanding that leaders are to be held accountable for their sin? In verse 19, we're told to get all the facts. Notice what he says here. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Verse 19 is put in place here. Remember, there's been false teachers. There's sin going on. Something needs to be done, but there's a, a warning that's coming here. If you're, if, if you're going to, to pursue that, you need to be extremely careful. Verse 19 serves to protect the elder or pastor from false accusations. Paul is citing, again, the Old Testament here. Deuteronomy chapter 19, 19 verse 15 states, A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. That sounds very similar to what we have here in verse 19, right? It's a simple principle. An accusation must be tried on the basis of accurate evidence, not hearsay or rumors. Verses 19, 20, and 21 are speaking about church discipline. 
It says that a single person charging an elder or pastor of sin is not enough to act upon. It's not enough to act upon that one person. And probably what it's pointing to, that one person is not enough evidence to act upon to take him before the church for correction. However, if the accusation is brought by, what? Two to three witnesses? which they serve to confirm the accusation, it should be acted upon. This refers to the steps that are found in Matthew chapter 18 when it lays out the process for restorative church discipline. What you have here in Matthew, I mean, excuse me, uh, 1 Timothy 5, verses 17 through 25, in particular 19, 20, 21, is how you apply church discipline to a leader in your church. He doesn't get an exemption, right? He doesn't get a pass. And Paul's going to flesh that out here in a minute. So for for the sake of better understanding what's going on here, I need to read you Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. It talks about the steps for carrying this out. Listen carefully. Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. He repents. You've gained him back. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. There it is. It's not enough to act upon the one person. He doesn't repent of his sin. You you go get two more, which equals three, and you take them with you. If he refuses to listen to them... If he says, nope, I'm going my way, I'm doing my thing, then you take it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, that's referring to acting like a sinner. You're to treat him as if he's lost. Truly I say to you, whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now it's assumed here in chapter 5, verse 19 that the first step of restorative church discipline has taken place, in which one believer is going to another believer who's caught in a sin and speaking to that sinning brother one-on-one. And Paul is saying, step one is not enough to take that leader before the church. The second step, if he does not repent, you take... Two others with you to confirm his sin and his unwillingness to repent. You're you're taking two witnesses with you, which equals three, and you're confronting about this sin, and that person refuses to repent even then. Then that matter is brought to the church. Not just one person, but it takes three people to affirm the sin and the refusal to repent. Paul's instructions are for protecting the elder or the pastor. When people... uh, when people get angry at leaders, uh, they feel they have a right to strike out at them and say whatever they want to say. So God's Word provides protection. That's what's going on here. It says, do not admit a charge against an elder. Uh, this simply means you shouldn't listen to unsubstantiated charges and don't automatically accept as true an accusation made against an elder or anyone else for that fact. Okay? Not just leaders for anyone, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. 
So there's protection going on here. So here's a way to apply this. What do you do if someone comes to you with something damaging against me or Richard or for that matter, any other believer? What do you do if someone comes to you? It's important to the testimony of Christ that we handle such situations in a godly way. If the person coming to you is spreading rumors or gossip, he needs to be corrected. He very well could be in the process here of himself, of sinning. But let me give you five things quickly. If someone comes to you with a charge against one of your leaders, or any other person in the church for that matter, here's what you need to say to them. What is your reason for telling me this? Why are you telling me this? Why do I need to know this? If the person says, I just wanted you to know so you could pray, you've heard that, right? (laughs) Then you should caution him or her not to say anything more to anyone before they check out the facts and take biblical steps to deal with it. Number two, ask them, where did you get your information? If they refuse to identify the source, it's a sure sign of gossip. Is there more than one witness yourself? If not, the accusation should not be received and the accuser should be shown uh, this scripture and warned about spreading charges any further. Show them the Bible. Third, Ask them, have you gone to those directly involved? If the person has not gone to those involved, he's probably more interested in spreading gossip than helping to restore the one who's fallen into sin. Remember, if your brother sins, go to him in private. Talk to him about that. Fourth, have you personally checked out all the facts? I remember my dad telling me as a boy, there's always two sides to a story. Sometimes there's three. Sometimes there's two. There's your side of the story and there's their side of the story. Sometimes there's three. There's your side of the story, there's their side of the story, and then there's what really happened. Have you personally checked out all the facts? And lastly, this one will end it quickly. Can I quote you if I check this out? A person spreading gossip won't want to be quoted by name. They don't want to get involved in the messy business of helping confront and restore a person in sin. They just like to spread gossip. That's the first need in disciplining a leader is to get the facts. If the charges are true, then there is a second need. Notice verse 20. The need for public rebuke. Proper discipline of a church leader requires that he be publicly rebuked. As for those who persist in sin, notice there, they continue, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Again, this is Matthew 18. It's being carried out here in 1 Timothy. It's assumed here, you've got to pay attention here, it's assumed here that you've already gone one-on-one and the person refused to repent. And you've gone back with two or three, and again, there's still no repentance. 
So after going to Him one-on-one and going to Him with multiple witnesses, if He does not hear you at that point, as painful and as unpleasant as it can possibly be, you bring it before the church. And I would say this, in that event where there's two or three witnesses who go, there should be a church leader involved with whoever's going with that first witness. Some will say, remember, this leader has fallen into a sin. He's been confronted. He refuses to repent. You take two or three witnesses. They establish that sin. He says, no, I am not repenting of that sin. And then Jesus says, you need to take that before the church. There needs to be a public rebuke. Now here's what some will say. That's not a very loving thing to do. To which I would say, The loving thing is not to wink at sin. The loving thing is not to sweep sin under the rug. The loving thing to do is to not let sin destroy someone's life. If we don't deal with sin God's way, listen to me, Satan will deal with it his way. It will lead to gossip, slander, divisions, and greater sin in the body. God's way is to deal with the matter publicly here. Let me give you three values of why we would want to do this. Well, one in particular, it's in the Bible. But let me give you three values of this rebuke before the church. Public rebuke clears the name of God and His church from association with and toleration of sin. If a church leader sins or anyone else and the matter is covered up, there are still going to be leaks. And when the leaks spread, people begin thinking that the church tolerates sin. And that erodes the trust in the gospel message we proclaim and the holy God we serve. Second, public rebuke causes others to be fearful of sinning. Look at verse 20 so that the rest may stand in fear. And I know we're going, we shouldn't scare people. Let me ask you this. Fear is not necessarily a bad motivator. Right? You do it to your kids all the time. <laughs> yep, mom and dad. So don't go there. You do it all the time. Fear. It's not a bad motivator if it keeps us from sin. Public discipline, especially if a church leader makes people see the seriousness of sin. It causes a healthy fear of God. If people know that church discipline will be administered without partiality, verse 21, they will be fearful of becoming the object of such rebuke and will avoid sin. You get the picture? I see that. I don't want to go there. I'm going to avoid sin. Third, public rebuke causes a sinner himself to be fearful of sinning again. No one will want to go through something like that again. If the church is consistently carrying this out, it will act as a deterrent to sin. Verse 21 gives us the third aspect of this discipline of the pastor, the need for impartiality. This is very important here. 
Don't miss verse 21. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging. Do nothing from partiality. Notice what Paul says to Timothy. Listen to this. Paul says, Timothy, you need to remember who's watching. God the Father and Jesus the Son of God and not the fallen angels, but the elect angels. They are what? They're watching. Think about that. God's watching. Jesus is watching. The elect angels are watching. That ought to stir up the awe and fear of God in Timothy, should it not? And it ought to do the same for our fear and our awe of God. Based on that, Timothy in verse 21, notice... I'm sure this got Timothy's attention. Paul says, look, Timothy, God's watching, Jesus is watching, and the elect angels are watching. I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging. Doing nothing from partiality. Paul reminds Timothy that one day, he will have to give an account to God who observes and judges all that he does. And for that reason, he should practice these principles without prejudging. The word means a prejudgment that takes sides beforehand about that, that elder's innocence or guilt. Also, he says, notice he says, do it without partiality. That is, uh, an elder or pastor refuses to repent of his sins should not be given a pass for church discipline just because he's the, the pastor. This principle applies to all, not just the pastor or the elder. You see what he's saying to Timothy? God's watching. It doesn't matter if they are a pastor or a leader in the church. You better keep these commandments. You better follow these rules that are laid out by Jesus Himself. Look at verses 22 through 25. Selecting church leaders. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Uh, the laying on of hands, I think... We probably understand what that means. We've heard that term, but for those who, who that may be unfamiliar with that, this is talking about uh, recognizing a man that's set apart for pastoral ministry. We do that to who? Pastors and deacons, right? We, we lay hands on, which is symbolic of the church, approving and affirming this person meets the qualifications. We do this in ordination. But what's the point of verse 22 in the context in which we're talking about? The answer is, Paul is telling the church the way to avoid having repeated discipline problems with your elders. And that is avoid hasty, quick ordination. Setting people aside for ministry. This is the second time that Paul has said this. If you go back to chapter 1, excuse me, chapter 3, he said, don't make a novice an elder. By the way, this would be good advice for any leadership role in the church. Don't take a new convert, a novice, and make, put them into a position of leadership within the church. Notice verse 22 says, Why not to ordain too quickly? Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part, listen to this, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Why do you not ordain quickly? It's because there's the idea of corporate accountability here. Do you hear what I said? There's, a, there's this principle of corporate accountability. 
Timothy is responsible for the men that he's involved in ordaining to the office, and so is the church. When you lay hands on someone, putting them into the ministry, you are accountable for them. That makes you stop and think, right? We are brothers and sisters in a family, and we are responsible to one another. And not one of us can sin without there being a consequence for the whole congregation. And so because of the doctrine of the church, there is mutual accountability here. Notice what he says there. Don't be hasty to lay on hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. So there's accountability here that goes on in the life of the church when there's sin. And yet there's, a, there's another principle that's important, not just for elders, but for everybody in the church. You cannot live in opposition of your Christian profession without it having a direct impact on the spiritual welfare of every single person in the congregation. A little leaven leavens what? The whole lump. We are sharers in one another because we are united to Christ. And therefore, we live not only for ourselves, but especially for one another. That's why Paul closes verse 22 with a warning to Timothy to keep himself pure from sin. You see that? The church is accountable in the sins of other people. Don't hastily put people in positions. Watch carefully. and We'll talk about that in just a minute. Now, verse 23. What's up with that? Some of you are going, I couldn't wait for you to get here. You heard nothing else I've said. You're waiting on verse 23. You're reading this and you're like, who put that in there? Why is that in there? What's up with verse 23? Glasses. Verse 23. No longer... Drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and frequent ailments. I knew that was in there, and I read it again this week, and I'm going, why is this here? I think it's clear that Timothy was a total abstainer. Okay? He didn't drink wine because Paul's having to tell him to do what? Drink some. Now that's not a license for you to leave today. He's a total abstainer. He didn't drink wine, but because he had stomach problems and frequent ailments, and because the water in that world was polluted, it would cause all sorts of problems. Dysentery. Those of you who know what that is, you're going, Phew. For those of you who don't, just ask mom and dad when you get home. Paul says, look, you need to drink a little wine for some medical purposes here. It'll help your stomach, Timothy. And so Timothy is told to partake of a little recipe, if you will. Not to get a buzz, but in terms of helping him physically and medicinally. All cards on the table? Your pastor drinks a little recipe every now and then when he gets sick. I had to take some this week. And when I took it, I was reminded... 
why in the world did I ever do this before? The taste and the stench of that stuff, it was just like, why would I ever want to do this? Why did I ever do it? But he's saying, for medicinal purposes, your frequent ailments. And Timothy was a kind of a weak little guy. He had stomach problems and he was kind of sickly all the time. And Paul says, you just need to take a little wine here to get rid of that problem in your stomach, Timothy. Don't drink it to get a buzz, just help yourself. And that's why it's here. I think. Verse 24. Paul returned. I, I think it's just a way of saying, here's all Paul's been telling Timothy, and Timothy ain't feeling good to begin with. So Paul says, you need to get some wine, Timothy. I'll take care of that stomach problem. Let's get back to what we were talking about. The sins of some people are conspicuous. Uh, clearly evident. The, the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. What's Paul been talking about? Don't ordain hastily. Verse 24, the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. Some men clearly demonstrate they are unqualified for being leaders in the church because their sins are evident to all. Their sins are said to go before them to judgment. What is evident, and it's clearly sometimes in some people's lives, those things are evident. You need to look at those things and don't be hasty to put people in leadership. Notice it says that these sins are said to go before them to judgment, which refers to the church's judgment about whether they are qualified. What Paul means is that right off the bat, the church can recognize that certain men are not qualified. How do we know what the qualifications are? Paul's given us those in chapter 3. Verse 24 says, But the sins of others appear later. Paul says, For others their sins only come to view after some time. If a church hastily ordains them, and these sins appear later, after the ordination, what do we do? Uh-oh. The implication is the church should avoid hastily ordaining and get to know people well before they ordain them as elders. And I would even apply that to the role of deacons. And I would say this. It doesn't mean to know them as good old boys, but as godly men who can lead others to godliness. That's what he's talking about. Verse 25 speaks of godly qualified men. So also, good works are conspicuous. And even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Verse 25 parallels verse 24. Just as an unqualified man's sins will show themselves, so will the good deeds of one who is actually qualified. Again, chapter 3 is what qualifies them. Those things will be evident. Look at chapter 3 and the qualifications and look for those in that man's life. Those things will be clearly evident. And just as an unqualified man's sins take time to show themselves, a qualified man's good deeds that aren't immediately evident can't remain hidden forever. And here's what I would say. The church, any church is always in danger of drifting with the culture. Instead of confronting it with God's Word. And you know what the mantra of our day is. Tolerance, right? we got to be tolerant except for anything or anyone who's not tolerant. The view of our world is that we can't criticize or judge anyone no matter how far out of line they are because that implies that we're right and they're wrong and that doesn't fit with the ultimate virtue of our tolerance. 
while you get accused of being hateful when you confront sin and call people to holiness, and while some do it wrongly, I'll admit that because they lack compassion, doing so is not hate. But it is the love of God that confronts sin and false doctrine. Living in sin and teaching contrary to God's Word destroy people. And leaving them in that, we will be held accountable. Holiness and sound biblical doctrine save people from God's judgment and build them up in the Lord. Our God is holy. We His people, and especially those who are church leaders, must be holy ourselves in our behavior. I also want to say, as a member of this church, this passage isn't just about the pastor and the youth pastor. I said that in the beginning, didn't I? This passage is about all of us. We are a community of mutual accountability and how we live matters. Or else Paul wouldn't have spent his time in this passage talking about bringing people to account for not living in agreement with their profession of faith in Jesus. If it wasn't necessary, why would he even bring it up? In many churches, there's the idea of easy believism. Our text today expects our profession of faith to mean that we live in a particular way together in the church. And here's one last thing I want to say. This is God's way of dealing with those who fall into sin and go astray. There's not my way or your way of dealing with it. This is God's way of dealing with it. There are no other options. There are no buts. This is the way God says we deal with with sin and the life of leaders. And this principle can be applied to all of those who claim the name of Christ. Let's pray.